Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Bald Guy Podcast with your host, Jeff Brown, and our guest, David Schaefer. Welcome, everybody. This is Jeff Brown, better known as Bald Guy Around the Country. Today, we're going to be talking with EIUL insurance policy expert, David Schaefer. Welcome, Dave. Thanks a lot, and I'm really looking forward to this one because we're not going to be talking about EIUL, so I'm very excited for this particular conversation. Yeah, we're, we're going to get all thoughtful on you guys today. We're going to do something different. We're going to discuss something that we refer to as the madness of crowds. So let's just dive in, Dave. Sure. Where are the customer's yachts has become where are those multi-million dollar 401ks? Do you want to run that by us in English? Yeah, absolutely. In 1940, there was a book came out, Critical of Wall Street, and it was simply called Where Are the Customer's Yachts? And uh, he asked a very important question. When he was, uh, he had worked in the uh, in, on Wall Street in the 1920s and 1930s and um, was leaving Wall Street. And one of the reasons why he was leaving on Wall Street was because when he lo- looked out on New York Harbor there, he saw lots of yachts. But they never were the customers of Wall Street's yachts. It was the actual brokers and the mavens of Wall Street that owned all those yachts. So he asked a very simple question. Where are the customers' yachts? I mean, they're supposed to be giving advice, making the customers lots and lots and lots of money. So how come they don't have yachts too? And it was a, it was a very funny take on Wall Street at the time. Um, later updated in 1955. But I just updated it a little bit more. Because I want to know where are all those multi-million dollar 401ks that we're supposed to be seeing. And that's to me, is a critical question. Because, frankly, everyone is pretty much following the Wall Street prescription right now. Put money aside into your 401ks, accept the match, and you're going to move right into a smoothest retirement income life that's going to be very helpful for you. And no one is really questioning that. So I want to know where are all these multi-million dollar 401ks that we've been promised? Because very simply, when we look at the data out there, they don't exist. Now, I do say multi-million dollar 401ks for a reason, because the assumption is that you can get about 4% of your money out in retirement. So 4% of $2.5 million, if you had $2.5 million in the account, would be $100,000 annual income. If you're less prosperous, and perhaps did a $2 million account, then you can get $80,000 annual income. And remember, that's taxable too. So to me, that would be the minimum amount to have a prosperous retirement income would be $2 million. And I want to know where all these are because, frankly, the data study after study after study point out that the average for those 55 years and over is less than $100,000 in a 401k. And that's a long ways away from $2 million. So that's why I asked that question. Now, uh, would you just back the truck up just a second and tell us where you got that 4%? The finance mavens try to look at what the maximum amount that you could take out of of a fixed amount and not chance running out of money sometime during your retirement. And they came up with running what they call Monte Carlo simulations that if you take out more than 4% per year, you run the chance, if you have bad luck, of running out of money before you die. And so that's where that 4% uh, comes from. The 4% is a safe amount of withdrawal that you won't run out of money before the average person dies. So 
I want to go back to the person that wrote where the customers shop because he simply pointed out that the advice that was the givers on Wall Street were giving simply was not good. And it wasn't good because no one demanded of them an accounting of their advice. In other words, no one looked at the data about what their advice was leading to. And so my suggestion is that we're at the exact same spot as they were back in the 1940s looking at stockbrokers. We are not demanding of Wall Street an accounting of what their advice is. And so the madness of crowds, simply following the advice of Wall Street and our government and not demanding some sort of accounting of that advice. Thank you. Now, moving on, what Madison Avenue taught Wall Street, or how to use modern communications to get the lemmings running, you want to translate that one for us, too? <laughs> okay. I, I assume everyone understands or has seen the videos of the lemmings running off the cliff, and so that's where I got that from. But, uh, <laughs> you know, most people don't understand where propaganda came from, how it was designed, what it was designed for, and the flow, how it went from one place to another. So let me take you back a little bit. Let me take you back to World War One. The United States government had a real issue in World War One in that there was virtually no public support for us sending troops over to Europe. I mean, virtually none. And so they formed a committee called the Committee on Public Information, also known as CPI or the Creel Committee. And this was considered an independent government agency that was designed to influence public opinion to support the U.S. participation in World War I. And it got to be a very big government department with 18 different subsections and literally hundreds of employees. But what they did was create what we now know as public relations. And they used the multiple methods to do that, and they were very successful, well, moderately successful, I won't say they're very, moderately successful in, in changing public opinion to support the war effort of World War I. Now, interesting enough, at the end of World War I, they disbanded this because it wasn't needed anymore. And a guy named Edward Bernays, who happened to be Sigmund Freud's nephew, he took the techniques that he learned there and he brought them directly to Madison Avenue. He went to work for an advertising firm on Madison Avenue and became an outspoken propagandist for using these tools for democratic government. And so what they learned to do was multiple. First of all, and you're going to love this, Jeff, they created fake news, and they're very open and honest about what they were doing. So they create fake news. They use simple emotional language and kept it short. And we now know that as KISS, keep it simple, stupid. I don't know if you've heard that before, Jeff, but I certainly only have. Only a million times. Only a million times. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the uh, first design uh, during World War One. Then they learned to disseminate it often and widely, and they realized that they had to keep repeating it repeating it and repeating it. So that's what they learned from that. Interesting enough, in the 1920s, there's a lot of discussion about whether this was something that should be used in democracy or combined with democracy or is something that was subverted to democracy. But never really, no one really questioned it that much. And Madison Avenue became very successful, as we all know. They sell everything from soap to war. And initially it was called what it was, propaganda, which, of course, morphed into what we now know as public relations. And there's also a couple interesting side stories about it. Joseph Goebbels of the Nazis, he paid great attention to this and made great use of it for himself. And uh, he, he was the head of the Nazis' Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda Department. In the 1930s, he put this all together in order to uh, 
to bring Adolf Hitler to power and to uh, do the things that they did. Most people don't know that, but uh, it all came from Madison Avenue, interesting enough, and, and our war effort in World War I. But it wasn't until after World War II that Wall Street started feeling the need to employ these type of strategies. And it's really because before World War II, there's really no middle class. And so Wall Street was really aimed at the truly wealthy in society. That was done more by networking. Most of these people all went to Ivy League schools, and they all had families that grew up together. So there wasn't any great need for them to expand their consumer base. But after World War II, as the middle class starts to build, they started to really have that need. And so they went to Madison Avenue to design their quote-unquote propaganda. And now we're at the full, get the full effect of it. You know, you can simply look on TV and watch the commercials and see it at work. You look at modern commercials where you see attractive older models at a beach with a nice sunset or in their large mountain cabin or traveling the world all with huge smiles on their faces at all times. Remember now, simple emotional language and visuals disseminated widely is the key point, and that's exactly what they do to sell us their services, which right now is using mutual funds inside of 401Ks for most of the middle class. You know, it's gone beyond Wall Street, of course. The insurance companies are in the same business now, too. And so uh, it all started during World War II in order to get us to, uh, to accept the fact that we're sending soldiers to Europe. So that's the history. And I think it's, it's uh, interesting in that what started out as a government program then went private and then has been used consistently and more regularly by both the government and private industry to convince us to do things that they want us to do. Well, being totally objective, why wouldn't you use what works? Oh, of course. Now, you've said before, and, and I think it's a very, very interesting statement, why is it important to erase history as soon as it passes or what you can discover just by learning history? Well, let me talk a little bit about the education system to kind of demonstrate that. Because most people don't understand, you know, we have this great compulsory education system that we spend so much of our society's resources to educate kids. Most people don't understand why it was formed, for what reason it was formed, and what it attempts to do to our kids. And so, once again, if you actually study history, you'll find that folks are very open about what they're trying to do when they form the education system or anything else for that matter. You know, I'm just going to read you a quote from Woodrow Wilson in 1916. He says, and for those of you who don't know, Woodrow Wilson was the president of the United States. He says, we want one class to have a liberal education. We want another class, a very much large class of necessity, to forego the privilege of a liberal education and fit themselves to perform specific, difficult, manual tasks. Wow. Let that sink in for a little bit. <laughs> And he was talking about getting the compulsory education system off the ground. Now, Rockefeller was very instrumental in this, and they formed the General Education Board, as most of the Rockefellers and his cronies. And they had some interesting things to say as they were forming compulsory education. And, and I just pulled this out of a pamphlet that came out in 1912. But they had actually been working on this for about six or eight years at the time. And I'll read it to you because it's really mind-blowing, I believe. In our dream, people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. We shall try not to make these people or any of their children into philosophers of men or men of learning or men of science. 
We have not to rise up from among them great artists, painters, musicians, nor lawyers or doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen, of whom we have ample supply. We will organize our country's children and teach them to do in a perfect way what their fathers and mothers do in an imperfect way, like becoming soldiers. Compulsory schooling was from the very beginning about organizing society into certain people's dreams of what a society should be like. In other words, social engineering. But more importantly, teaching to be passive vessels of which knowledge is poured into. Pretty scary stuff, huh? It is. And, you know, circling back to the point of all of our podcasts, which is somehow to, to arrive at a rich and, and reliable retirement income, you can see what's happened and why, again, coming full circle back to 401ks as an example, why, even though it's been in use heavily since 1985, the 65-year-olds today or however they, old they are when they decide to start taking money out are averaging, give or take, hundred grand, and a lot of times less. And it's because they don't have the education. They're being told literally erroneous methods of investing and they're reaping the lack of benefits. And we see this all the time. And once I, I get calls all the time, Dave, and I know you do too, from people who are anywhere from 45 to 55 years old, and they woke up one morning in a cold sweat because they woke up in, a, in the, what I call the bed of reality. And the first words out of their mouths was, oh, my God, what have I done? Yeah, I, I get those calls too, and it, you know, it really goes back to what we've been talking about here. The, uh, you know, our schooling system has let us down because it's not designed to teach people how to think properly about anything. It's designed simply to create passive folks who believe what they're told, and we are indeed told that the 401k with mutual funds inside of it will provide for us in our future, and it simply hasn't. You know, interesting enough, talking about history, do you know what the history of the 401k really is? Tell us. 401ks were designed in the 1980s as a way to get additional compensation to upper-level management of large corporations. So from the very beginning, they had no intent to create something that would be widespread use by the rank-and-file workers, so to speak. It was simply a way in a tax-efficient manner for the corporation for them to get compensation to some folks high in, high in the management level that they feel like they wanted to compensate it in ways other than they already had. And so from there, that tax code was changed to allow for 401ks, and it became an instrument that Wall Street globbed onto to, uh, and presented to corporations saying, hey, instead of having these pensions, which are very, very difficult for corporations to manage, they said, why don't you go to the 401ks for your rank-and-file members and have them, have them just put in our products inside of those and not have to worry about what happens to these folks if they live too long or anything like that. Put it back onto your employees instead of onto the corporation to manage all this. And that happened very quickly, and unfortunately, um, most of us, it took us a while to figure out what was really going on and what was really wrong with 401ks because at the outset they seemed like a kind of a good deal. You know, mutual funds, you know, you get the tax break up front. You know, heck, that sounded pretty good when I first heard it, but it took me a while 
And I probably had one of those moments that you talk about when it's like, wait a minute, something's not right here. Let me figure out what's going on. So. Well, Dave, I'm a pretty simple thinker, and uh, just let that one pass, will you? Um, <laughs> And, and and what I was taught by, by my father, who was one of the most astute businessmen I knew in person, is that you can analyze everything to the last degree, but if you have enough time to historically evaluate what anybody is professing to be real and successful, that means you have a track record of results. And that's why when you look at 401ks, we can argue about why 401ks have failed. What amazes me and what demonstrates the absolute effectiveness and power of Madison Avenue's uh, Wall Street, is what I call it, public relations, is the fact that people don't argue about why they have failed. They argue about if they have failed. And it just confuses me to death that people can't see literally 30, 35 years of failure. Now, we have talked a lot about this, and I know, uh, again, referring back to my dad, he used to talk about fear being a great enemy, and you say it's our most formidable enemy. Why is that? Well, let's take a, let's take a book out of science. Starting about 15 or so years ago, uh, science started using CAT scans to look at the brain as it went about its processes of thinking and what they found out was that, A, we make decisions a lot more emotionally than anyone ever realized. You know, before that, people could argue that, well, you know, you can really do things in order to trick your mind into making rational decisions. But what we found out from that is that that's all kind of BS. Our mind makes decisions mostly emotionally, especially when the uncertainty out there is strong. When you're not sure about what's going to happen, then our emotions really kick in and rule the day. And of those emotions, they found out that there's one emotion that absolutely can get people to do almost anything. And that emotion it has the ability to short-circuit the brain's ability to any rational thought, and that's fear. And it really it's backed up by a lot of previous research and some observations and really common sense is that when people get scared, they do all sorts of things, and it's very rarely rational. So when I say fear is our most formidable enemy, because fear is the one thing that will short-circuit our rational thinking completely and force us to act in a totally emotional way. And you talk and have talked uh, uh, many times about how that fear causes people unintentionally uh, with their 401k and the, and the mutual funds and other stock investments inside their 401ks to end up buying high and selling low. Would you explain that? Absolutely. And we see this with flows in and out of mutual funds. We have 30 years of data to back it up. But what we know is that when the market starts going down and the harder or faster it goes down, the more people get scared. And when they get scared, they start not listening to anybody, not even their Wall Street folks who say, don't do anything, just sit on it. What they do is they start selling their stocks because they're seeing the value of their 401ks or their stock portfolios, whatever it is they have, go tumbling down, and they can't handle it because now they're scared, and so they're going to sell. Now they're selling low. 
and the opposite, of course, happens. As the stock market gets going up and up and up, as it does sometimes, people get scared that they're missing out of something. They're, saying, they're thinking to themselves, my neighbors are getting rich because their stock portfolios are going up significantly. i got to get a piece of that pie. So they start buying. And they, the more it goes up, the more they buy. So they're buying high, selling low, which is, of course, the total opposite of how anyone could possibly make money using equities. You know, we started today's podcast saying we were going to discuss the madness of crowds. How can you escape the madness of crowds to build your future? I know how I do. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, and it's going to sound funny. I understand this. When I see, like if I'm watching TV and I see one of these commercials, I start asking my TV questions. And you can laugh all you want, but it really formulates some things in my mind. When I see, when I see a, a nice couple that's kind of retired and having a great time around the world, uh, I start saying, well, how did they get there? How much money did they have to have in order to get there? How did they accomplish that? And then that forces me to go say, well, I better go look at the data, right? Because it's out there, you know, and that's just one of many examples. So first, the first thing, obviously, is you have to start asking questions. And from there, then you can start looking at the history, looking at data, trying to piece together how people's opinions of how you should be doing things fits with what's happened in the past, things like that. And so that's why I say understanding history looking at what's actually happened really makes it work well. Well, and I think one thing, and this is so Captain Obvious that it's almost uh, shameful to have to mention it, but I noticed this about myself as I was maturing in, in the industry, Dave, and that is the first thing I needed to develop was the ability to discern the difference between PR and objective facts. And once I, dis I was able to be conscious of that need, things change for me vastly. Yeah, and it was the same thing for me. Um, I always was a little bit of a social critic. I always had that little bit in me. But it really takes a, some really hard emotional work to decide that you're just not going to accept what is as being true. You really have to decide, hey, I'm not so sure about that. Why don't I start asking questions? Why don't I start looking into this? You know, obviously, you can't do this on everything in your life, but certainly you should be doing these things on the important things in your life. What I tell folks all the time, and you do too, is, you know, the four pillars of my purposeful planning are real estate. Get an EIUL if it's age appropriate and it fits into your finances. Get discounted notes secured by real estate in two different ways, one inside of a Roth wrapper and the other in your own name. Is there anything about that that you would want to comment on or you have an observation? My observation is only that if you look at the history of those particular strategies, you'll find that A, they have worked in the past as long as you had a proper expert leading you along the way. B, they're tax efficient. And C, they pay attention to income as opposed to how big a portfolio you have or how much you're worth. Because ultimately, it's about how much you're able to put in your pocket during your retirement years that counts. Not how much you make, 
not how much you, how large your portfolio is. It's the amount of income that you put into your pocket on an annual basis. And that's what I try to tell people all the time. All your strategies for retirement should be about putting income in your pocket. You don't want to put income into the government's pocket. It doesn't really matter how much it's all worth. Well, and the way I put it, and it really strikes home with so many people, Dave, is when you're retired and you're going to the grocery store to stock up again, are you writing the check on the money you have and spending your after-tax money, or are you slicing off a piece of your net worth? You're using cash flow after taxes, right? That's right. Well, Dave, thanks. You have just knocked it out of the park. I really appreciate what you've done for us today. Thank you so much. I was really looking forward to this, and this has been just really, really fun with you. Appreciate it. Everybody listening, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Bald Guy Podcast with Jeff Brown and our guest, David Schaefer.